Welcome to Living Truth Radio, a ministry of Living Truth Christian Fellowship with Pastor Michael Lance. It is our goal to build up believers and reach out with God's truth to all people. Now here's today's message with Pastor Michael. Acts chapter 18. So here's where Paul is. He's moved into the city, corruption, all kinds of difficulty, and he writes in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 1, And when I came to you, brethren, writing back to this church that was established, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined, I resolved, or decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And when I was with you, says Paul to the Corinthians, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. It appears that when Paul came to Corinth, he was kind of at the end of himself. He had taken on the philosophers. He had come to Corinth and he made a decision. He had resolved in his mind. He purposed, I'm going to stick to the message of the cross. And to the Greek mind, the cross was foolishness. To the Jews, it was a stumbling block. To the Greeks, it was foolishness. But Paul says, if we trust in Christ, to those who know him, Christ is the wisdom of God and the power of God. But people in Corinth, just like in modern Corona, said, what can a man dying on a cross mean to my life? Well, he isn't just a man, first of all. He's the God-man. The one dying on that cross is God. He came into this world and he lived the perfect life you cannot live and died on that cross as the innocent sacrifice, shed his blood for you. And the Greek mind said, that's ridiculous. They were big on wisdom. They, they thought, you know what, that, that message really doesn't matter to me. And Paul was getting beat up. William Booth said, while women weep, I'll fight. While little children go hungry, I'll fight. While men go to prison, I'll fight. While there is a drunkard left where there remains one lost dark soul, I'll fight, I will fight to the very end. And that was Paul. But he came in troubled, fearful, uh, trembling. And he said, you know what, I'm going to stick to the message of the cross He's in this city, F.W. Farrar pictured, uh, imagine market stocked with many cosmopolitan goods, Arabian balsam, Egyptian papyrus, Phoenician dates, Libyan ivory, Babylonian carpets, Cilician goat's hair, Lyconian wool, Phrygian slaves. It was a melting pot, but Paul saw the city in a different way. He saw it as a strategic way to get the gospel out. Because he figured if all these people were coming here from different lands and they were selling things and people were going back, this could be a great place to preach the gospel. As a matter of fact, of the two most important cities that Paul ever visited, Ephesus and Corinth are the top two. Because they, he had the chance to make the most impact on people with uh, the crowd swelling up to 500,000 people. And so to Corinthianize meant to practice harlotry. A Corinthian girl was a synonym for a prostitute. Corinth was the vanity fair of the ancient world and to be a Corinthian-type person was to be a party animal. That was first century Corinth. So here's Paul, and he's in the city, and he is addressing the needs of the people. He writes back to, first, to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and says, Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. Listen, but su su and such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, 
but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Paul says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit which is in you? You've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. If you've studied First and Second Corinthians, you know that Paul was dealing with a lot of immorality in the church. People became Christians, but then they were tempted to go back to the temple of Aphrodite and say, well, you know what? I have a need, and, and why not fulfill my need with the girls up there? And Paul says, no, you can't do that anymore. Do you not know that when you sleep with a prostitute, you become one with her? The Greeks were famous for trying to separate what you did with your body from your spiritual life. So they said, you know, there's a duality of the soul. So you could do what you want with your body and you can still be spiritual. And Paul says, that's a lie. Your body houses the Holy Spirit. How it all works, I can't tell you for sure. But your body is the temple of the Spirit of the living God. Your behavior with your body does matter. And so Paul wrote back to the city and he even gave them an Olympic analogy. He said, do you not know that in a race... All the runners run, but only one gets the prize. Run in such a way that you may get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will perish. We do it to get a crown that will last forever. You see, Paul used what was happening in the city to tell people, look, you got to, these Olympics you watch every two years, you got to see your Christian life like you're an Olympic athlete. You don't eat six donuts to get ready for your skating performance. It's fine. I'll be good. No, you train. And you train. And you train some more. Why? So that in that one moment of time, you can perform to your peak. You can hit the jump or go around the, the little barrier with a ski slalom or whatever you're doing. And Paul says that's an analogy to your Christian life. You have to train to be effective as a Christian. If you read your Bible every two weeks, when you happen to come to church, believe me, you're not going to win the race. The Christian life is like training for an event. And you're always in training. Yes, God's grace is sufficient for us, but we need to be constantly uh, immersed in the things of God. So how does the Lord encourage Paul's faith? Look at verse 2. And he, Paul, found a certain Jew named Aquila, and likely he was already a believer, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. This is the famous Aquila and Priscilla. Because Claudius, here's why they ended up in Corinth, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, he came to them. So the Roman historian outside the Bible, Gaius Suetonius Tranquillus, who was the chief secretary to the emperor Hadrian, had access to the imperial records. He's writing in a section uh, on Emperor Claudius, who ruled from AD 41 to 54, and he said, because the Jews at Rome caused continuous disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, C-H-R-E-S-T-U-S, and the historians that look at this say that's a variant spelling of the name Christ. So a secular historian writing during this time said, there are all kinds of instigations happening in Rome at this time, and it was all around this Crestus individual, or preaching of Christ. And the emperor heard about it, Claudius heard about it, and he got tired of hearing the disturbances. So he kicked every Jewish person out of Rome. 
This is documented in secular history. And off go Priscilla and Aquila. Four out of the six times they're mentioned in the Bible, Priscilla is mentioned first. Why is she mentioned first? The diminutive form of her name is Prisca. There was a famous, famous family in Rome uh, by that name Prisca, and there are some commentators that believe she was associated with this famous well-to-do family in Rome. She became a believer in Christ, and the emperor kicked her out of her homeland. And she may be mentioned first because she was more prominent in terms of her own family origin. Others believe that maybe she was uh, somewhat of a leader in the church. You can do your own homework on that. But um, here's one thing I want to just note for you note-takers is sometimes when we're down, we need the encouragement of a Christian friend. You might want to write that down. When we're down, we need the encouragement of a Christian friend. Now, Paul found Aquila and Priscilla. He met them And not only were they Christians at this time, I believe, but they were of the same trade. He stayed with them, and they were, verse 3, working, for by trade they were tent makers. Apparently Aquila was a tent maker, and obviously Paul was. Rabbis at this time had to learn the trade of their father. Paul worked with his hands. He would make things out of leather. He would make tents and so forth. He was a tent maker. So he didn't spend all of his time preaching and teaching or evangelizing. He actually had something that he did as a trade. He made a living. And a lot of you are at that point in your life. Maybe you'd like to be in full-time ministry, but right now you're working a trade. And you've got to do the best you can. But isn't it cool when you find a co-worker at your company who's a Christian? That could be a real encouragement. Sometimes you feel like you're in the lion's den at work, and then you realize there's a brother in the Lord already there. And you say, you're a Christian. And he says, you're a Christian. Yeah. Yeah. And you've been working together for 26 years. (laughs) And if anybody ever says with surprise, you're a Christian, you might want to do a little bit of soul searching because obviously your witness in the company has not been terribly strong. Now, the encouragement of faithful friends, uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, writing back to Corinth, Paul says, do you not know that, do you remember the verse? Bad company corrupts good morals. Take it in reverse. Good company does what? Strengthens good morals. Your friends do matter. You need to hang around people who will encourage your faith. I'm not talking about the fact that you can't have unbelieving friends, but I'm talking about close friendships, hopefully, are encouraging your faith, making you stronger so you can be stronger with your non-Christian friends. And so Paul sprung into action. He was reasoning, verse 4, in the synagogue, as he often did every Sabbath. He was trying to persuade Jews and Greeks who happened to be there. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, he had been waiting for them in Athens, but he had to, to leave town, and now they came to him. Paul began devoting himself completely to the word solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Now the second thing I want to just give for your notes is the encouragement of tangible support. Sometimes we're feeling all alone, maybe in ministry, and we get a word. And here the word came from Silas and and Timothy, and they said, Paul, I know you were worried about the Thessalonian believers. They are staying true to Christ, so be of good cheer. Write down 1 Thessalonians 3. You can read about that later. And also, a offering came in for Paul from the Philippian church. And Paul heard a good report about the Thessalonians, good news. 
and then he got some tangible support. So sometimes when you get a positive word from somebody and it's backed up with some encouragement that you can make it, Paul says, that's wonderful, this is encouraging. And he decided with that money that uh, was given as an offering, he would devote himself now completely to the word of God, solemnly testifying that Jesus was the Christ. I, I think anybody who's feeling a pull towards Ministry in a full-time capacity goes through this, where you work a secular job for a time. I was ordained in 1995, but I went into full-time ministry in the year 2000. And for five years, I worked a full-time job, and I was a pastor. Then I became the senior pastor of a church in 98, and I was bivocational for a year and a half, pastoring a church and working a full-time job, and I had small kids at home too. And that was something to juggle. But when the church was ready, the church says, Michael, we can now pay you. And it was time to go into full-time ministry. And I can tell you that's been a real precious thing now for me for uh, almost 14 years, to be able to devote myself to the Word of God, to the uh, ministry, prayer and the ministry of the Word. It's been awesome. You guys support that by supporting the work of the fellowship. I'm able to give myself fully um, to the work of the ministry. And so that was encouraging for Paul too. And so look at what happens now in your Bible. Follow along with me in verse 6. So he goes in and he's proclaiming uh, Christ in the synagogue. And when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on I shall go to the Gentiles. Paul goes into the synagogue, but the reception wasn't necessarily all positive. Some people not only resisted the gospel, but they blasphemed the name, apparently, of Christ. And they said, we want nothing to do with this Jesus. And if you've had, you know, maybe a dinner conversation with a friend, you try to go down the gospel path, and you can watch some friends just, their faces begin to contort. (laughs) Oh, no, they're very normal, calm people, but you bring up the name of Christ, and something happens to people. I don't want to talk about that. Why don't you want to, You were very calm until I brought I don't want to. And you're like, what is it about the name of Christ with people? Some people, they just get angry and they start cursing and even blaspheming. So Paul did something that I would recommend in evangelism. If you get somebody who resists you in evangelism, here's what you should do. You should just say to them, your blood be upon your own head. I am clean from now on. I go to the Gentiles. And when you do it, look at verse 6. Just shake out your garment right in front of the thing. I don't even want crumbs from your restaurant or your table here. Here. Here's my shoes, too. Actually, I don't recommend that in evangelism. But Paul wasn't politically correct. He said, fine. You don't want the gospel? Good. Your blood be upon your own head, but I'm clean. Now, Paul is actually using language from the watchman on the wall, Ezekiel 33. The watchman's job for an ancient civilization was you're on the wall. If you saw an invading army coming, you had a, something like a horn or a trumpet. You had to blow the warning blast. If you warned the people in the city, the invading army is coming and you blew the warning blast, then if they didn't get out, their blood was on their own heads. But the watchman's told, but if you see that invading army and you don't blow the warning blast, their blood is on your head. 
Wow. And in Acts 20, 26 and 27, the Apostle Paul references this, he references this idea. And just flip over there and you can take a peek at it with me. Using this watchman imagery, he says, Acts 20, 26, therefore, Acts 20, 26, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Now, there's comfort at the end of this message, but I'm going to give you a, a moment of discomfort. If you do not faithfully proclaim the gospel, when God gives you open doors, the implication is you're responsible for those people. Wow. Now, I don't think that means everybody you pass by or brush by on the street. But I think it means when God opens a door and it's clear you should proclaim the gospel and instead of swinging, you don't even bunt, you run the other way. I think we need to realize as Christians that God's going to hold us accountable. He wants us to be faithful to proclaim the truth. And if we love people, certainly we will do that. We will want to share the gospel. And so he said, I'm going to the Gentiles, guys. You don't want to listen? And he departed from there. And he went to the house of a certain man named Titius Justice. He was a worshiper of God here, a Gentile, probably connected to the synagogue. And his house was conveniently located, would you notice? Right next door to the synagogue. So Paul <laughs> brushed off. Okay, fine, I'm going to the Gentiles. And he said, uh, oh, Titius, thank you for the invitation. Where do you live? And he said, right there. Paul went, cool, let's have a sandwich and some chips and we'll talk, Right? And so he was right next door to the synagogue. But what do you think the Jewish opponents of Paul were thinking? I rat. Right next door. Perfect place to evangelize people going in and out of the synagogue. There's Paul. And by the grace of God, he has set up shop. And look at what happens. And Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, verse 8, believed in the Lord with all his household. Now he's got the leader of the synagogue converted. Sometimes you, you preach to somebody and you think, oh, they'll never get saved. And the leader of the synagogue, things began to stir in him and he became a Christian. You, don't, you never know. You watch somebody and you think, oh, they're fighting it, they're resisting it. Well, Crispus started thinking about his soul. And he said, you know what? I think Jesus is the Messiah. And their leader, get this, the leader of the synagogue becomes a Christian. Amazing. Uh, he and his household believe in the Lord. Many Corinthians are being baptized. They're believing and being baptized, verse 8. And you had to think that Paul went to bed that night just having a personal party. This is awesome, Lord. But you know what? He wasn't. As a matter of fact, he went to bed that night and apparently he was considering a new career. Because you can see it's implied from the words that will be shared. See, that night it says, the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. I think Paul had a crisis here. You, you might say, but he was successful. He, things were going wonderfully. That was the problem. Paul began to see a pattern emerging, and it was something like this. Yes, people are getting saved. Some are rejecting. Some are getting saved. But you know, the people who reject, they tend to do something. And it's very personal to me. 
They make the messenger their target. And guess what? I'm the messenger. And he went to bed that night and he was having a restless night. And here's the third point for you who have been taking notes. The encouragement of faithful friends, the encouragement of tangible support. Number three, the encouragement of Christ, the best of all, the Lord. And when Luke uses the Lord, he means Jesus here, said to Paul in the night by a vision, don't be afraid. R. Kent Hughes comments. He says, what was getting the Apostle Paul down? Like the Old Testament prophet Elijah, Paul had been under excruciating tension for a long time, and he was losing his ability to rebound. Elijah took a nosedive after the heart-thumping tension of his encounter with the priests of Baal, followed by Jezebel's threats. And Paul was similarly reeling from his multiple encounters in recent months. He probably had not had sufficient time to recover from his beating. He was tired. And now facing the depressing moral ambience of Corinth, Paul had given way to fear and discouragement. Even though he was experiencing spiritual success, that may seem rather strange until we realize success is what he feared. After all, past successes had led to his own personal persecution. For Paul, the immediate future was perfectly predictable, close quote. In other words, Paul saw what was happening and said, I know what's next. I know that a beating is coming my way. This is the pattern that emerged in Paul's life. And Paul, implicit in the text, implied in the text, is afraid and he's considering not preaching the gospel anymore. And I think he may have come to the Lord and said something like this, Lord, am I doing the right thing here? Is this where you want me to be? I would like some sort of tangible evidence that I'm pleasing you and that you're with me because I think I'm going to wake up tomorrow and there's going to be a mob at the door and I don't know if I can go through this again. Help me. You ever been there before? You ever been at the end as a believer and said to the Lord, maybe in a moment of honesty, even though you don't want to say it, Lord, I don't know if I can live the Christian life anymore. I hear sermons about what we should be doing and I don't do it. As a matter of fact, there's not even things stirring in my heart to do it. And I go from degrees of difficulty and I'm not sure I can continue Lloyd Ogilvie writes insightfully. He says, I've learned this repeatedly in my own life. When my strength is depleted, when my rhetoric is unpolished by human talent, when I am weary, the Lord has a much better tool for empathetic, sensitive communication. The barriers are down. When I know I can do nothing by myself, my poverty becomes a channel for his power. More than that, often when I feel I have been least efficient, people have been helped most effectively. It's taken me a long time to learn that the lower my resistances are and the less self-consciousness I have, the more the word of God can come through me. Close quote. And Paul wrote back to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 12, and he said, when I'm weak, then I am strong. And I'll tell you, as someone who regularly gets platforms to preach, 
I don't like it. I don't like having to face my own weaknesses so that the power of God can flow through me. I would like to feel completely self-confident and strong every time God opens a door and know that I could just do it because I have the gifts and the tools and the personal abilities, but the fact is I feel inadequate and unqualified to do pretty much any ministry. And that's exactly where God wants me. And I have learned something, and it's taken me a while to learn it too. And I have to keep learning it over and over again. That when I'm weak, I'm actually the most usable I can be for God. If you would like to listen to this message, or if you would like more information about the ministry of Living Truth, please visit our website at livingtruthcorona.org. That's livingtruthcorona.org. Paul was a human, and he experienced his fair share of emotions. And when he got beat up in a city... He, his body hurt. And when he got rejected by his people, I'm sure emotionally it took its toll on him. He had such a great passion for the people of Israel to come to know the Messiah. And we go through our, our own struggles and trials. We all do. And we need to hear these words for ourselves. I, th- I believe we can stand upon this promise because even though this was spoken to Paul in the night, it's a broader promise for the church. It's, it's recorded in the book of Hebrews, one of the more emphatic promises. I will never, ever leave you, nor will I ever, ever forsake you. This is something that we can stand upon. This is something that Jesus said in the Great Commission. This is something that we see repeated in the Old Testament. I am with you in the New Testament. You see, God is with his people. Jesus said, I won't leave you as orphans. I will come to you. The Holy Spirit lives in us. That means God lives in us, and we've been sealed unto the day of redemption. He's not going anywhere, folks. He's not leaving you. He's not forsaking you. Sometimes you may feel forsaken. Sometimes you may feel empty. Sometimes you may feel overly susceptible, overwhelmed by life, by ministry. Maybe you're a pastor right now and you're listening and you're like, man, I can't do this another day. Yes, you can. Because you can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. So don't give up, my brother, my sister. Keep on holding on to the Lord because he's never going to let you go. If you belong to him, he won't let you go. And if you don't know him, Man, don't go it alone. Don't don't do this life alone. God doesn't want you to be alone. He wants you to know him, a friend that sticks closer than a brother, the one who is faithful to his promises. This is this is the God of the Bible, faithful to the end, faithful to the uttermost. He loved his own to the uttermost. He loved them to the end, and he will love you until he loves you right into his very presence. He will be with you. Even when you die, he will not leave your side. Thank you for listening to today's program. Our mission is to get the truth of God's Word out. This is our passion. We want to impact as many people as possible, and we have an opportunity to expand this radio program And we need you, the listener, to partner with us in prayer and in giving. You can give to our ministry through our website at livingtruthcorona.org.
That's livingtruthcorona.org.